John chapter 21, verses 20 to 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. We all know the sensation, the emotion of envy. And we could describe envy as that unpleasant sensation that we have when someone else has something that we want. But it actually can be worse than that. Sometimes it's not just even that we want it, but rather we just don't want them to have it. And we may not even want it ourselves, but we have this unpleasant sensation that somebody else should have it. Now, envy leads to other things as well. It can turn into resentment of others, ill will or malice towards others. It produces discontentment in us and also covetousness in us as well. And if we try to dig down and understand a bit about envy, we can realize that it's based on an inflated view of ourselves, an idea that we deserve, or if anybody should have this or that, it should be I. Now, social media are not the cause of envy, but they are an engine or a magnifier of envy. And uh, the more time you spend on social media, the less happy you are. Because you see all the other often fictitious pictures of other people's lives, and you say, why don't I have that. Envy exists even in the church and among Christians, and I have to say, even among Christian leaders. Sometimes pastors look around and we compare our lives or our ministries with other people's lives, other pastors, other preachers' lives and ministries, and we might think, why is his ministry apparently more successful or more blessed than mine. And then there's a subtext there when I am a better fill in the blank preacher, theologian, evangelist, teacher, or whatever it might be. But we all know the experience, don't we? Why am I single when she's married? Why is he so intelligent and I'm just so average? Why, why do they have healthy children when we can't have children or our, our children are not healthy? Why is she so beautiful and I'm so plain? Why is, 
Why is he so comfortable? And I'm, I'm just scraping by month after month. We all know the sensation of comparing our lives to others and being discontent with what we have and envious of what other people have. Now, I don't want to accuse Peter of envy here. I don't know if that's what he was experiencing. But we find here that Peter was comparing his life and perhaps his ministry with that of another disciple. And Jesus had a very strong response to him, which applies not only to Peter, but also applies to us as well. What had just happened last week? Peter was out fishing, and they had this miraculous catch of fish, Peter and six other disciples. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved recognized that it was Jesus on the shore who told them to cast the net on the other side of the boat. Peter plunged into the water to go talk with Jesus. And Jesus did have a talk with Peter, didn't he? And he rebuked him, but he also restored him to pastoral ministry and told him, shepherd my sheep, feed my lambs, take care of my people, restoring him three times to go along with the three times that Peter had denied his Lord. And so Peter had just been restored to ministry. And then there was that prophecy that Peter would stretch out his hands and they would lead him to where he didn't want to go, indicating the kind of death he would die in order to glorify God. And we think that Jesus was pointing to the fact that Peter would be crucified as well. And then he said to Peter, follow me, follow me. That's where we pick up the story. And it looks like that Jesus and Peter started walking along the beach. And Peter turned apparently behind him to see that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following along as well. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Now, this looks like a typical move of this gospel using a word in two different senses. We have seen this throughout the Gospel. And he was following them. And Jesus had just said to Peter, follow me, and he will repeat that now. And Peter turns and finds that there is another disciple following them. What did that mean? Well, it meant at a simple level that they were walking along the beach and this disciple was walking behind them. But it seems like, knowing how this gospel functions with these, these two different levels of meaning, it seems to indicate that this disciple was already doing what Jesus had called Peter to do, because it describes him here. It reminds us of who this disciple was. It says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is that who is going to betray you? So he reminds us here who he is, and he reminds us that he was the one that was closest to Jesus at that last supper. And if we go back and look at where this this disciple whom Jesus loved shows up, We find that he was sitting next to Jesus at the Last Supper, that he was the only disciple recorded to be with Jesus at the crucifixion. He is the disciple to whom Jesus commended his mother to take care of her after his death. 
He is the first disciple to make it to the empty tomb, the first male disciple. After Mary had already seen the empty tomb, he ran and he got there first, and he was the disciple who recognized Jesus from the boat and said, It is the Lord. And so as we recall how this disciple shows up, we find that he was already sticking to Jesus. He was already the one who was running after Jesus. He was the one who was following Jesus. And Peter, seeing this one following them, he has a question about that one. Now, you would think that Peter would be ecstatic. He had just been restored to ministry against all odds, perhaps against all expectations. He wasn't given a lowly position. He was given the position of feeding the flock of God. He was restored to pastoral ministry. And the Lord would use him mightily in the establishment of the church on the day of Pentecost and then bringing the gospel also to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. Peter would play a a formidable role in the the establishment and the building up of the church. And and you, you would think that Peter would just be pinching himself and saying, how is this possible? I who denied the Lord three times that I even knew Him, that I would be restored. But even though He had been just given this this gracious gift, He sees another and He says, what about Him? What's going to happen to Him? And Jesus' response here is a bit harsh, perhaps. Lord, what about this man? Verse 21. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? In other words, he's saying to Peter, that is none of your business. None of your business. What is that to you? If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, the way Jesus said it caused some confusion among the disciples. And here we see another thing that we see throughout this gospel. We see it here for the last time. Verse 23. So, the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not going to die. But that's not what Jesus said. He did not say that this disciple was not going to die. What he said was, if, hypothetically, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? But, once again, as we saw throughout this gospel, they took it literally They didn't get the hypothetical nature of the the, the declaration. And so this rumor went out that this disciple was not going to die. But let's, let's think about what Jesus had prophesied to Peter. He said, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and they will dress you and they will lead you where you do not want to go. Perhaps indicating, probably indicating his crucifixion. And if Peter understood that at the moment, he knew he was going to have a fruitful ministry of feeding Jesus' people, and then he was going to die on a cross at the end of his life. And that may be the reason he said, well, if, if I'm going to be crucified, then, then what about him? What about that disciple? And Jesus said, if I want him to remain, if I want you to die on a cross, Peter, like I'm... I've died on a cross. If I want that for you, and I want him to remain until I come and escape death entirely and and be, be taken right into glory when I come, what is that to you? 
that is not your business. That's my will, not your business. And then, he says to Peter again, but strengthened. He says to him, you follow me. He had told him earlier, follow me. But now he makes it stronger using the personal pronoun. He doesn't just say to him, follow me. He says to him, you follow me. In other words, don't worry about my plans for him. Here's what you need to focus on, Peter. You follow me. We would all be much happier in life if we could just take this to heart. If, if we could just take this command to heart and not be concerned about God's plans for other people's lives and how those plans for other people's lives compare with God's plan for our life. Because you see, we don't have what Peter had in one sense. Peter had some instructions about what was going to happen. Peter had some predictions about what was going to happen in his life. We don't have that. We don't have a a direct word from Jesus about His plan for our lives. But what we do have is this. Our lives, how do we need to figure out Jesus' plan for our lives? We need to live them. That's how we will know what Jesus' plans for our lives are as we live them out. We don't have a specific word saying, this is what's going to happen to you. This is what's going to happen to you. Peter had that. We did not. We do not. But we do have the same thing that not only Peter and every other disciple or would-be disciple of Jesus has. And what's that? A command. A command. You follow me. And we not only have that command, but we have a book. We have a book that tells us how to follow that command. So, here we have it. A simple command. You follow me, and you follow me according to what I have revealed to you about what you should do in order to follow me. Now, you might have noticed that this is a fairly large book. And therefore, we have more than enough to do. We have more than enough on which to focus without saying, well, what, what about him? And, and what about her? And, and, and what about them? What, what, what about them? How are they going to turn out? How is their life going to be? You follow Jesus. That's the command. That's what Peter had to learn. That's what this preacher has to learn. That's what all disciples have to learn. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and do what? Follow me. Now, after that stinging rebuke, we get the conclusion of this epilogue. And here, finally... Finally, in verse 24, the author of this book sort of identifies himself. Now, I have failed miserably. I had a plan to go through this whole series and not mention the name of the author of the book. But I failed miserably and it kept slipping out. I meant to say things like, the author of this gospel, but the gospel's called what? The gospel of... 
John, and so it just kept slipping out. I would refer to John as the author. But I meant to, even though I wasn't able to do it, I meant to follow the author's own procedure. Because unlike many authors, he doesn't identify himself until the very end of the book, and then he doesn't even do it by name. But this gets very interesting to try to figure out who this is. Now look at verse 24. It says, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So what's he saying here? He's saying, this is the disciple. Which disciple? The disciple whom Jesus loved. So he's saying, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who has appeared throughout this narrative, I am he. I am the one who is writing this book. And I'm writing this book because I am a witness of the things that happened and are recorded herein. Now that's important because all through this gospel, we have heard this word witness. And Jesus is calling witnesses, namely, mostly, his father, but also others, John the Baptist, Moses, the works that he does, the words that he does. But all of these are the fathers witnessing to Jesus, but there are other witnesses. And finally, the disciple whom Jesus loved is saying, and I add my name to the list of witnesses, because I saw all these things with my own eyes. I was with him. I saw this. And therefore, my witness is true. Now, there were others who saw these things, but there's a difference between this witness and other witnesses, and that is, this one was also an author. And that's why we have written here. He says, I am not only a witness, but I am a writer. I have reduced this to writing. Uh, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, I don't know how many dissertations have been written on the question of who the we is here. And we know that his testimony is true. It could just be an editorial we, In order not to use the first person singular, he could be just referring to himself using the plural, or it could be we, that is, I and those around me know that my witness is true. Now, who is this? Who is this? He's dropped some some breadcrumbs for us in this last chapter. Remember last week, in this incident with the fishing, that there were seven disciples who went fishing. And we know the names of three of them, and then we're given the names of the father of two more, and then there are two that are unnamed. So we know that Peter was there, we know that Nathaniel was there, we know that Thomas was there, and we know that the sons of Zebedee were there, and we know from the other Gospels that the sons of Zebedee are John and James. And there were two others who were not named. So we have seven, five of whom we know their names. Now, the disciple whom Jesus loved was one of those seven. So now we're getting to narrow it down. We know it wasn't Peter. So now we're down to six. We also know it wasn't James. Because we, when we go to the Acts of the Apostles, we find that James was killed almost immediately. And this book was written after that. And so we know it wasn't Peter, we know it wasn't James. So now we're left with John, 
Thomas, Nathaniel, and two who are unnamed. And now we have to do some more detective work. When we go to the other Gospels, we find that within the twelve, there is a group of three that has a special relationship with Jesus. And sometimes when Jesus would do something, He would take those three along with Him. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus took along whom? Peter, James, and John. And uh, the two sons of Zebedee and Peter. So they seem to be a, a tight group within the tight group. And if you look at the Gospel of John, we find that when the disciple whom Jesus loved appears, Peter often appears close beside him. Think about the Last Supper. It was Peter who said, Hey, ask Jesus to whom he's referring. And then John, then, well, the disciple whom Jesus loved, see how hard this is? The disciple whom Jesus loved leaned back and said, Who is it? So there was a special relationship between Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. In the other Gospels, there's a special relationship between Peter, James, and John. And we know that James was killed very early on. And so that leaves John. Okay, finally I can say it. That leaves the Apostle John as the most likely candidate for the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, there are other reasons as well. And as I say, multiple dissertations and books have been written about this question. But he's the most likely candidate, and he is the only candidate that we have going back in church history as far back as we can go. The Apostle John is the one that the church identified as the author of this gospel. And, in fact... There are no other even mildly strong candidates. And when you find a candidate in the scholarly writings, you find that this candidate may or may not have even existed. It's an invention of the, of the scholars. And so there's not even a, another strong candidate or mildly strong candidate other than the Apostle John. Now, strictly speaking, all of the Gospels, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are anonymous. None of them identify the authors. Now that's different from the fake Gospels who, that come much later. In the fake Gospels, the authors are banging the table to try to prove that they were Thomas or they were Peter when they weren't because it was much later. And so the fake Gospels are trying to fake you out by pretending to be someone, whereas the real Gospels don't do that. They are, strictly speaking, anonymous. And so we can't make it an article of faith. We can't make it an article of faith to say, you must believe that the authors of these Gospels are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because that's not, strictly speaking, in the Bible. However, this is what the church has always confessed to be the case. And, in this case particularly... In this case particularly, if it was not the Apostle John, we don't know who it was. But if it was the Apostle John, then that very much strengthens what he says here. Let's look at it again. Verse 24. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. 
if that was the Apostle John writing, then that is a very, very strong statement because there is no one else who could have told us with that much authority all of the things that we have read in this book. There is no one closer to Jesus other than perhaps Peter himself who could have been a witness and could have written what we have here. So that, that, that supports the idea that this is John and it very much strengthens this statement about himself. Now, um, this last line, he finally uses the first person singular and he says in this delightful conclusion to the epilogue. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's a whole lot of information that we do not have. And the author here, who saw it all, is saying, this is just a piece of it. This is part of it. And it would be impossible to give you all of it because the world itself could not contain all the books that would be written if everything that Jesus did were written down one by one. This dovetails very well with what we saw last week, the conclusion, or two weeks ago rather, the conclusion of chapter 20. Look at chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Put these two together, and what is he saying to us? He's saying there are many other things that could have been written. He did many other things, but I've given you what you need. You have what you need before you. It's written, it stands written, and it is still written, and we have it in our hands. And we have spent these last months reading what John has written to us. And he says, this is enough, folks. This is sufficient for you to know who Jesus is, to know what Jesus did, to believe on Jesus, and to follow Him with your lives. And with that conclusion, He puts the ball in our court. Actually, He's done that the whole Gospel, hasn't He? He's put the ball in our court to say, now what about it? How, how are you going to respond to this? If I have told you true things about Jesus. I have declared to you who He is from the beginning. And I have told you what He's done. And and my witness about Him is true. And if you will believe what I say about Him, you will have eternal life. What about it, folks? How are you going to respond? We've come to the end. And we have another opportunity to respond to what we have here written. And what do we have declared throughout this this book about who Jesus is, about what He has done. Well, we have learned that He is the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us and showed us 
God's glory. We have heard that He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We have, we have learned that He is the, the source of living water, that if someone drink of that living water, He will never thirst again. We have found that He is the, the Messiah, that He is the Son of God, that He is the bread of life, that He is the light of the world, that He is the bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he will never be hungry again. If anyone follows the light of the world, he will not walk in darkness. He is the Savior of the world. He is the Good Shepherd that lays down His life for the sheep. He is the resurrection and the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. He is the one who has been sent by the Father. He is the one who is lifted up on the cross. And He is, as Thomas declared, Lord and God. We have this on good witness that these are all true about Jesus. And now, what are we going to do? We can walk away and say, well, that was interesting or not. Or we can believe it and have eternal life and follow Jesus with the rest of the days that He gives us. Following the plan, the good plan that He has for each one of our lives. Let's pray. Our God, we thank You for this journey through this Gospel of John. And we finally get to meet the author at the end and find out who He was, as best we can tell, and find out that He was right there. He saw it all. And as remarkable as the things are that He declared to us, they're true because He saw it and many others saw it. And we thank You that they're written down for us. And Father, I pray for all of us that have been here to hear this piece of John or all of the Gospel of John, that we would believe it, that we would have eternal life, and that we would follow Jesus with our lives wherever He would take us. And wherever He takes us, we know that it's good. And we pray this in His name. Amen.